every single one of you, me included, is a week older than the last time we gathered together here on Sunday morning. How's that for a happy thought on a gray Sunday morning? You're a week older than you were a week ago. Next week, you're going to be a week older than that. And the week after that, you're going to be a week older than that. Even my son was just talking to me a minute ago. And he said, it's been a year, he said, since I was baptized back in 2018. He's a year older than he was a year ago. Time never goes backwards, does it? It only always goes inexorably forward. And all of us find ourselves getting older and older and older and never younger and younger and younger, despite how much we try to do to make that stop. The process of aging and getting old is one of those things that has for centuries called forth the wit and the wisdom of human beings as they consider what it means to to age, to get old, to make our way into the, the later years of our lives. One old wag said at one point, don't let old age get you down. After all, it's too hard to get back up again. Lucille Ball, famous comedian, said once, the secret to staying young is to live honestly, eat slowly, and lie about your age. Somebody else once said, old age is not so bad when you consider the alternative, dying young. There's a senator from Florida, Senator Claude Pepper, who once told a story about a stockbroker who was trying to get him to buy a a stock that he swore up and down was going to triple its value every year. And Senator Pepper looked at him and said, son, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas. And then there's the old observation that inside every old person is just a young person wondering what the heck happened. Most of the wit and wisdom of the world that the world can come up with about growing old, though, is is not so much wisdom as it is just a little bit of gallows humor, right, that makes us feel a little bit better about the process of of getting older. Reminds us that it happens to everybody, reminds us that it's a a natural part of life, reminds us that it's it's not all fun and roses all the time. It reminds us that there are good parts of it and bad parts of it. It reminds us that at times it's nothing to be afraid of. But for the most part, it's just a kind of gallows humor, not really wisdom. But I want to take you this morning to a passage of Scripture that I think does, in fact, have some strong and deep wisdom when it comes to the process of growing old. And that is Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and 12. So let me invite you to take a Bible. Uh, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you're using one of these red pew Bibles in the uh, pew rack, either in front of you or under your seat, that looks just like this one, you can find our passage this morning on page 559. We're actually finishing up our study of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. This book, uh, 12 chapters long, was written some 3,000 years ago, and it's one of the five books of the Old Testament that are known as wisdom literature. All of which, including Ecclesiastes, are in their own way and with their own angle, written to try to teach us the art of living well in God's creation. Uh, if, if you talked to me, uh, say, six weeks ago when we were preparing for this study on Ecclesiastes, and several of you did, you know, you heard hey, we were going to be in Ecclesiastes, and some of you came up and said, how, so how are you feeling about that? That's kind of a weird book. And if, if you were one of the people who did that, then you know that at the beginning of this thing when we first started it, I, I wasn't very much looking forward to this, to this series. I had, I had never studied Ecclesiastes in any in any depth. I'd read it before several times, but for the most part, the whole book just struck me as exceedingly hard and, and maybe even despairing. So I was afraid 
that going into this series, it was just going to kind of be five or six weeks of, of me sort of qualifying the teacher of Ecclesiastes over and over again and saying something like, but of course, we read this guy in Ecclesiastes, but he didn't know about Jesus, and all of this despair is, is not what it is for us as Christians because of Jesus. That's what I thought I was getting myself into, and I wasn't much looking forward to that. I think I even told one of you to, you know, bring on the troubles of 1 Corinthians. I would rather be, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff than the despair of Ecclesiastes. But as we've made our way through the book over the last five, six weeks or so, I, I hope you've kind of learned with me and seen with me that Ecclesiastes is not a despairing book at all. I mean, if anything, it's a book of great hope. I mean, Yes, it's a book of bracing reality, right? It teaches us to look at the brevity and the thinness of life with clear and unflinching eyes. Don't look away from it. Look at how brief life is. Look how it, it's a vapor. It's here one minute and gone the next. Look how thin it is and how you can't grab it and make something lasting out of it. But at the same time, it shows us how to look at life with that kind of bracing reality. It's, it's also teaching us that it's that very clarity about the brevity and thinness of life that allows us to enjoy life for the gift of God that it really is. I think sometimes Christians can have an unfortunate tendency to look too quickly past this life and onto the next one. In other words, to kind of discount the joys that God intends us to have in this life because we're, we're looking forward to what he has in store for us in, in the next life. But the message of Ecclesiastes, far from being that this life is meaningless and worthless and sort of you know, nothing to be looked at, nothing to be focused on at all. Far from that, the message of Ecclesiastes is that the short years of, of even this life are deeply meaningful and that we should live them well and with joy. I know from talking to many of you and receiving notes from you and emails and all the rest, I know from, from talking to a lot of you that studying through this book has been kind of, kind of uniquely encouraging to many of you. And as, as you send me letters and emails and talk to me after the service and all the rest and, and explain that to me, I, I started to wonder why. Like, what is it about this book, what is it about this sermon series that evoked all of that sort of, you know, thank you and all the rest for studying, studying this book? What, what is it that evoked that? And I thought, well, I don't think it's that I'm doing anything different in preparing the sermons. I don't think I'm, like, preaching any better, you know, from, you know, John or something and that, you know, everything else has just been kind of mediocre, but this was great. You know, I don't think that's it. So why? Well, I think I figured some of it out. And I think what I, the conclusion that I came to is that I think it might be that most of the other books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, most of them are actually working very hard to pry our eyes off of this life and the stuff of this life and put our eyes on the next one. Because the tendency of our heart, very much, as human beings, is to let our eyes lock onto the things of this world, and so we worry, and so we, you know, we're bothered, and so we're slogging through this life, and most of the Bible wants to pry our eyes up and put our eyes on the, on the world to come. Ecclesiastes is one of the very few books in the Bible that is actually working very hard to take our eyes off of what's out there and pry them back down into the stuff of this life. It's not that the teacher doesn't believe in the next age. It's not that he doesn't believe in the next life. He does, and he says so a few times. But he wants us to know that this life, this age, isn't just something to be grimly endured until we can get to the next one. Now, this life in this age is a gift from God with all its rhythms and patterns and heartbreaks and backs and forths and ups and downs and sorrows and joys and laughters and tears. It's a gift from God. And there's a way to live it that will bring joy. 
Well, over the past few weeks, we've been seeing the teacher's wisdom about how to live this life well. You can remember all the things that we've talked about. They're just kind of the points of the last three or four sermons. Remember God's providence. Remember God's judgment. Live your life not for yourself, but for others. Live humbly. Live in the joy of God in the shadow of the grave. Live in reliance on God. Confront evil with shrewdness, patience, and humility. Confront death with hope. And then last week, value wisdom for what it's worth, but don't live as a fool or a coward. Those are the the pieces of wisdom that the teacher has been laying out through the entire book. And in the passage this week that we're going to look at, we've come to the end of the book. And it's a fitting end, I think, as the teacher backs out to give some final wisdom to both the young and the aging. So let's look at it. We're going to begin reading in chapter 11, verse 7. That's where this, that's where this section begins. Chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Many people throughout history have been of the opinion that the words of of this passage in particular, particularly that poem, there in chapter 12 about aging and death, are some of the most beautiful words that have ever been breathed out by man. I think that may be true. These words are deeply evocative. They're they're deeply emotional. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. And because the emotion in these words is so strong, I think it's easy to lose sight of exactly how the teacher is using them. They're, They're not just meant, this poem in chapter 12, is not just meant to make you feel sad about the reality of age and ultimately of death. It's meant, rather, to make you feel the pressure of those realities in these years of your life so that you look at 
and live life differently now, no matter what stage of life you're in. I think the main idea of this passage is is this. The main idea is death comes for us all. Death comes for us all. But live in such a way that when it comes for you, it will be to you a fulfillment and not a terror. Let me say that again. Death comes for us all. But live in such a way that when it comes for you, it will be for you a fulfillment and not a terror. Now, you may be wondering, what do you mean by that? What exactly do you mean by that? Live in such a way that when it comes for you, death will be a fulfillment. Well, hold on to that question. It's important. I hope by the end of our time this morning, you'll see what I mean by that. If you live life as God intended it to be lived, death doesn't come to you as a terror. It comes to you as fulfillment. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Over the course of these, these verses that we've just read, the teacher speaks to two main groups of people, two, two, two groups that one way or another I think include all of us, the young and the aged or the aging. There aren't any real hard lines. He doesn't exactly you know, identify an age at which you go from being young to being aged. No hard lines as to where one of those categories begins or where the other stops, and it doesn't really matter anyway. I mean, whether you put yourself in the category of aged or aging or whether you put yourself in the category of of young, that's sort of up to you. The point is that part of true wisdom is to be able to hear what the teacher says actually to both groups, no matter what category you happen to put yourself in, and learn from them both. So two points to the sermon, because the teacher makes two points. Number one, if you're young, if you're young, remember your creator and live life to the full. If you're young, remember your creator and live life to the full. And number two, if you're aged, remember your creator and praise him for your years. Remember your creator and praise him for your years. So point number one, first, the first thing that the teacher talks about, and the main thing really that he's, that he's talking about here is, is this. If you're young, remember your creator and live life to the full. Remember your creator and live life to the Our passage this morning actually begins in verses 7 and 8. You can see there with with words to the age. That's where he he starts. And we're going to come back to those two verses in the second point. But it's also in in this section that we've just read that it finally becomes clear exactly what Ecclesiastes is. I wonder if you've noticed what Ecclesiastes is, actually, as we've been studying through it. It is a letter from a father to a young son. Have you seen that? Have Have you caught that as we've been studying it? You notice that when we read it a few minutes ago? Look down at chapter 12, verse 9. At chapter 12, verse 9, something changes in the voice of the letter. Up until this point, with very few exceptions, you've had the teacher himself talking, right? Maybe this is Solomon, maybe it's another king of Israel, but, but whatever. It's a, it's a king teacher in Israel, in Jerusalem, and he's been talking, with very few exceptions, throughout the entire book. Well, in 12, 9, it changes because it's not the teacher talking anymore. It's somebody else beginning in verse 9. You can see that, right? Besides being wise, and then he starts to talk about the guy. The preacher also taught, the, and he goes on, and he's the one talking through the end of the book. So what's happened here is that somebody else heard the teaching of the preacher and put his words down on paper. And look why this guy did this in verse 12. It's two little words, but I think they're deeply moving. My son, he says. The guy who compiled and wrote down the teachings of the preacher is writing this for the benefit of his son in order to teach him how to live well in God's world. 
Now, you know, we don't know anything about the story behind that, but I think it's fascinating because I don't think that most of us, whether we've read Ecclesiastes a hundred times or never before, most of us don't tend to think of Ecclesiastes exactly as a book for young people, do we? I mean, this book we think is, is all about sadness. It's for, it's for sort of old and wizened and maybe even cynical people, but no, it's not. This book, right from its very creation, right from its very initial writing, is a book for young people. That's what it was created to be. This father, whoever he is, wants his son to live well. He wants his son to avoid the worst mistakes of life. And so he puts the wisdom of the teacher down on paper for his son to read and consider and make the foundation of his life. So I think it's fitting then, if that's what the book is all about, if that's what it's for, I think it's really fitting that the last words of the teacher himself are specifically spoken to young people. And actually everything from verse 9 all the way down through 12.8, even that poem about aging and death. You may, have, you may have been reading along with me through that poem about aging and death and thinking, well, I'm, I'm young, that's not for me, let the old people in the room look at that and, and do with it what they will. But that's not really, no, even that poem is for you if you consider yourself to be young. I mean, you can see it because the teacher says so. Chapter 11, verse 9, look who he's talking to. Rejoice, oh young man. That's who he's talking to. And then and then look at the beginning of that poem in 12.1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Even with that poem, he's talking to the young. And what does he say? Through all of this, what does he say to people who are young? Well, I mean, again, as has so often been the case with this book, I think what he says to young people here is just Stunning. I think it sets us back on our heels. I think it is stunningly freeing. I think it's stunningly life-giving. I think it's finally just astonishingly good. And it just lets you take a deep breath and then exhale and say, I don't think I've ever thought about it quite like that. Because what he says is, listen to me, young person. Live life with everything you've got. Follow your heart. Follow your eyes. Do what you want to do and what gives you joy. Go have a lot of fun. And in all of it, remember your creator. That's what he says. I mean, I, I, mean, I know, I know. It's a, it's a stunning thing because it's not at all what you expect to hear in church, but that's what he says. Look at, look at verse 9 of chapter 11. Look what he says there. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things... God will bring you into judgment. I think what he says there in, in verse 9 is just wonderfully life-affirming. If you are young, the teacher is saying that part of what God wants you to do with the years of your life is to pursue joy, to do things that make you happy, to look around the world that he's made and see what your heart and your eyes are drawn to and then do those things. I think sometimes, especially among Christians, we can have an almost sort of ascetic sense that pursuing joy and doing what is fun to us as Christians is inherently wrong. They were told over and over again at conferences and in books and all the rest and from pulpits that we have to be always doing something important. You gotta be doing something meaningful. You gotta do something with your life every minute of it, every hour that moves the ball down, uh, down the field, that matters. You gotta redeem the time every minute and every second. And the teacher isn't against that. I mean, he says in other places, you gotta work with all your might and produce something. As long as you don't fool yourself into thinking you're building some lasting monument to yourself. But the teacher also doesn't want you to miss the simple, freeing truth that God has created this world for us as his people to enjoy. 
And we ought to think of enjoyment not as a kind of necessary evil that we have to endure in order to get on with what really matters, but as a really important part of what life is really all about and what God intended it to be in the first place. Let me show you a couple of details here. Look with me at verse 10. The teacher says there in 11.10, he says, remove vexation from your heart and, and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Put away vexation, put away pain. In other words, do what you can, he says in verse 10, to minimize frustration and discomfort in your life. But, but the thing is, now you can think of a lot of different ways to, to do that, but, but what I want you to see is that the thing is, he's already used those words, vexation and pain, in this book to describe three different things. Three different things that he says cause vexation and pain, and now he's saying you should put those things away from you and go pursue pleasure. You know what he says causes vexation and pain in this life? It's, it's almost mind-blowing. He says that the things that cause vexation and pain, which you should now put away from yourself, are having too much wisdom, working too hard, and pursuing riches. <laughs> having too much wisdom, working too hard, and pursuing riches. I, it's just almost mind-blowing because every other message we hear, both from usually the church and the world, is telling us exactly the same thing, right? Drive, drive, drive. You've got to acquire wisdom, read the books, learn, grind, work harder. Get rich, either in knowledge or wealth or money or something, but do something with yourself. Build a legacy. I mean, even Christian conferences and books are constantly just about the work of trying to light a fire under our tails to get us to do something radical. Make a dent in the world. Make your life matter. But you see what the teacher's saying here. He seems to be saying, just, just hold up for a second. Slow down. Just slow down. Take a breath. Look around you and see the roses that God has put in the world. See the coffee that God has put in the world and smell them both. God has put so many delights in this world and part of what he wants you to do is see them and find joy in them and glorify him for them. Listen to me, what the teacher is saying here is, look, maybe God doesn't frown on your shell collection as much as you have been taught. <laughs> maybe he smiles at your shell collection because you smile at the shell collection. I mean, really, friends, it's, it's not even, what, what he's saying here is not even all that different from what the New Testament teaches. And you realize the, the, the life, the Christian life described in the New Testament is not a life of afterburners firing all the time at full throttle until you disintegrate in a ball of flame. No, the Christian life that the New Testament describes is one a lot like this. It's one of, quote, living the life that God has appointed to you in 1 Corinthians 7, of, quote, doing honest work with your hands and making a living so that you might have something to give to others. That's Ephesians. Of, quote, living quietly and at peace with others. That's 1 Thessalonians. Look, if the catechisms are right, and if the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, then part of what that means is also learning to find joy in this gift of life right here, right now, that he has given to us. In fact, look back at verse 9. You see that last sentence of verse 9? It, it's, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. It sounds like sort of taking away with the left hand what the teacher is just given with the right, doesn't it? Rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But be careful. Know that for all that, God's going to bring you into judgment. But 
know, it doesn't have to be like that. Actually, it may just as well be translated more like this. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, and know that even for all that, God will hold you accountable. You see the difference? In, in other words, part of what God wants you to do, part of what God will hold you accountable for, is your ability to find joy in this life and worship him in life as you enjoy the gift that he's given you. Did, you. did you ever stop to think for a second that one of the sins Jesus may have died for you for is your failure to see and embrace God's good gifts because you were trying too hard to do something radical for him? Settle down and enjoy the life God has given you. And of course, though, this isn't just a hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. That's not what the teacher is talking about. If you've been with us through the book, you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, there is such a thing, right, as a hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. It's a kind of reckless, mindless pursuit of pleasure because you either refuse to acknowledge or just stupidly assume or ignore the fact that there's a God in heaven that's going to judge you at the end. But what the teacher's describing here is not that. I mean, on the contrary, he very much wants you to remember, even as you pursue and embrace joy in this life, that there is a God. And that one day, youth will come to an end, and then finally, so will life itself. And he says it there at the end of verse 10. Youth and the dawn of life, he says, are vanity. Again, he doesn't mean meaningless. He doesn't mean empty. He means short, ephemeral, like a, like a wisp of, of smoke. Here one minute and gone the next. That's how... That's how youth is. That's how the beginning of life is. It's vanity. It's ephemeral. And so starting in chapter 12, verse 1, he writes this poem about the onset of old age. We're going to talk more about the details, some of the details of that poem in, in a minute. But, but for now, I just want you to see how he's using this poem because I don't want you to get lost in the, the sort of emotion of the poem and miss how it's functioning in the text. What he's saying through, through the use of this poem is, listen, Youth isn't going to last forever. This, you're not going to have strength to do anything you want to do forever. So don't waste those years with your nose so pressed, so hard to the grindstone that you never look up to enjoy what God has given you or to do something that brings you joy. You're not always going to have the chance to do that. Don't waste it. I think that is such a striking message to us. Because it is so different from what we usually hear from both the world and from religion, right? It's so different from what we hear from both the world and, and religion. I mean, the world is all about the first part, isn't it? Do what feels good. Follow your heart. Suck the marrow out of life. Live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. But, 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 but the problem is there's no God in, in the world's approach to life. And so when you, when you approach life like that, it becomes, it becomes more of a sort of mindless, heartless ransacking of a house that you don't really belong in, rather than living like a son or daughter in God's world. And, and there's no real joy in that. But on the other hand, the religion so often gets the other half, but forgets the, the first half. Remember your creator, religion says. He's watching, so you better watch out. And make sure you don't slip up somehow. So often I think we, as religious people, dignify the old philosopher who once said that Christianity is just the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having fun. But the teacher cuts through both of those things, doesn't he? 
He cuts through the world's godless philosophy. He cuts through what, what passes sometimes as, as religious, religion's joyless philosophy. And he says, no, no, no. The way to live the years of this life that God has given you is to live them to the full. Pursue joy, pursue happiness, pursue pleasure, and have fun and do it all under the smile of your loving creator. Look, by the, by the way, remember too, remember too that essentially this is a book written by a father to a young son. The guy who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes is parenting. So, so this idea that life is good, life is fun, the creator is good and loving and he's smiling down on you, so go have fun but remember your creator at the same time. Is that the way you parent your kids? And when your children think about God, what do they think about? How do they picture him? What have you taught them to picture when they think about God? Is he just the, the killjoy, the sort of school marm that only shows up when you're trying to shepherd their hearts after a discipline? Or is he a smiling, laughing, overflowingly joyful God who created this world for our enjoyment and smiles down on us with love every single day? How do you parent your children? With generosity or with stinginess? With a vision of a God who is big and overflowingly joyful or a God who is stingy and crabbed? I remember years and years ago when my oldest son was only, he must have been about two years old, and we were at a, a dinner party, I think, or a Christmas party or something with a bunch of other families, and there was this, this one particular couple who had a, a, a little boy that was about the same age as, as my oldest, and everybody's running around, and you know, this, this fellow who had this, this young son was this, this big, big-faced, big-hearted, big-personalitied Italian, Italian guy, and uh, it, you know, I always just enjoyed being around him because he was a lot of fun. And at this particular Christmas party or whatever it was, there was a table set out with cookies everywhere on, on the table. And at one point, my little boy came up to me and, and you know, kind of asked me to pick him up. And he said, Daddy, I want a tutti. I want a tutti. And, and my heart's bent was immediately to think about all the reasons why my son couldn't have a tutti. You know, he can't get a cookie, I'm saying. He can't have a cookie. We have to ask mommy, and I don't know what else you've, I don't know what else you've eaten today, and I don't know if you've had too much sugar today, so no... You know, you can't have a cookie. Maybe later we'll, we'll figure it out. You, you ever find yourself doing that in your own parenting? You know, like your, your initial default thing is, just, is to say later. At least you can put the decision off. Or to say no because you, don't, you just don't want to deal with it. Well, I had just done that at this party. Told my kid he couldn't have a cookie. And then this other little boy ran up to this, you know, big-hearted Italian friend of mine. And he jumped up to his dad and he said, Daddy, I want a tutti. And, and I mean, without missing a beat, this friend of mine said, Yes, little man, of course you can have a cookie. And I thought, oh my goodness, I want to be more like that. I want to be generous and, and big-hearted and, and big-faced. And, and, and when, when my son looks at me and starts to get a picture of the Father in heaven from me, I want him to hear that and not what I just told my son. God is big and generous. Teach that to your children even in the way you parent them. If you're young, remember your Creator. Live life for all it's worth. Here's number two. If you're aged, if you're aged, remember your creator and praise him for your years. If you're aged, remember your creator and praise him for your years. The, most of what 
the teacher says here in this section is directed at young people, I think. But the teacher also speaks here to the aged and the aging. Most striking, of course, I think is this poem in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, that describes in just this deeply evocative language the process of aging and ultimately the coming of, of death. So, so starting in verse 2, what's going on here is that he compares aging to the gathering of a storm and then paints a picture of a town withdrawing as the sky darkens and the winds begin to, to blow. Let's, let's read it. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. We'll read it again. The teacher says there, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember him before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. You can feel the sort of foreboding in that poem, can't you? You can, you can feel the cold winds of this, this storm blowing through. You can, see the, you can see the women reaching out and closing the shutters on the, on the doors. You can see the people who are grinding at the mill walking away because the storm is coming and they need to get back to their homes. Some people have looked at this poem and thought it's a kind of allegory of the, the aid, the, the body of an older person. So if you look there in verse 3, for instance, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they're few and those who look through the windows are dimmed, people have seen allegorical meaning in that. So, for example, they've said the keepers of the house are, are the, the arms of the, of the older person and they, they, they tremble when old age sets on. The strong men, of course, would be the, the legs that are bent in old age, the grinders, would be, it would be the teeth, and, and they, they cease to grind because there are so few of them, it says. Those who look through the windows are, are dimmed. The, the sight is dimmed by, by just failing vision or, or cataracts or, or whatever. And then verse 4, the, the doors on the street are shut so that you can't hear the sounds of the city anymore. The, the ears are, are, are shut as the, as the hearing gives way in old age. I, maybe, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it works on a certain level and sort of fails poetically on another level because it starts to get funny I think. But look at verse, but look then at verse six. Verse six picks back up the main thought of verse one. You're supposed to sort of supply the first few words of verse one back again at verse six. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then you're supposed to supply that again in verse six. Remember him before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, or breath of breaths, everything is but a breath. It's all so short. Just beautifully, I think, evocative images of death there. A golden bowl suspended by a, by a silver thread that at the last moment shatters in the bowl, falls to the ground. A well where a rope goes over a, a wheel and and down to a vessel that goes down into the well to pull up water. And at the moment of death, the, the wheel breaks. The cistern shatters. And then verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was. 
the Spirit returns to God again. It's just achingly, I think, evocative images of aging and death. If you're like most, I think you'll find this poem, as, as beautiful as it is, as, as evocative as it is, I think you'll still find it, if you're like most people, haunting and kind of foreboding, right? And it, and it is. It's, it's meant to be. It's actually meant to say to the young, look, life is not always going to be as carefree as it is now. One day, if you're blessed, old age is going to blow through your life like a storm. And at the end of it all, the silver thread is going to snap and the golden bowl is going to shatter and that's going to be it. But for those of us, those of you, however you divide the categories who are aging or, or aged, what is there to learn from a poem like this that at first glance just seems so grim? Well, I think there are several things. I mean, for one thing, look back up to the very first couple of verses of this, of this passage, verses 7 and 8. I think this is the teacher's main word to you. He says there in verse 7 of chapter 11, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is short and brief and a vapor. You see his main word to, to you if you're aging or aged? Rejoice in the years that God has given you. There are days when life seems filled up with sorrow, and there are other days when you've been able to lift up your eyes and feel the heat of the sun on your face. Many days of trouble, many days of sorrow, but many days of laughter and joy as well. Be grateful to God for the years he's given you and rejoice in them. They are a good gift from God, and you should look back on them in that light. Also, I, I just want you to see, even from the words and the, 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 just the beautiful composition of this poem, I want you to see how tenderly our God seems to care for his saints when they come to their later years. And the Bible says in another place that precious in the Lord's sight is the death of his saints, but, but it's not just his saints' deaths that are precious to him. It seems to be their aging years too. I mean, think about it. These, these verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 about the process of aging, even some about the sadness of aging. They are some of the most beautiful and evocative words that have ever been written, and they came from the mouth of God about nothing less than the later years of his saints. Friends, the Holy Spirit took special care to treat aging and dying with great beauty and great dignity, and you should too. Oh, but more, friends, I, I think all of us, whether we're young or aging or aged, all of us should be encouraged by the reality of the resurrection that we have waiting on us because of Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul must have read Ecclesiastes when he, when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, right? The, the tent that is our earthly home is, is being destroyed. He's talking about this, this body right here. And step by step, year by year by year, it is slowly being destroyed. It's, a, it's an image that's, that's very evocative of this poem of a town closing up shop as the storm comes in, right? It's almost as if Paul was, was thinking about that. He says, he says there, if we know, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's happening, yet we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, waiting for us eternal in the heavens. Now friends, one day, 
one day your decaying, decrepit, dying body is going to be transformed. No longer into a temporary tent, but into a permanent building, a resurrected body where age and sickness and pain and tears and sorrow will never touch you again. As Christians, we look forward to the resurrection body because of what Jesus has done for us. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. If, you, if you're aging or if you're aged, it, it, it doesn't matter how many years you've got stored up in your backpack. God is not done with you until the moment he calls you home. He's not done with you until the moment he calls you home. He's he's not forgotten you. He's not not left you with, with no purpose, with nothing to do. If you are still here in this age, in this life, God has purposes for you. I love what Psalm 92 says about the righteous. It talks about the righteous being being a tree planted by by waters. And he he says of those trees, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. But to you, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're here among us and you are one of those who has lived many, many years, part of what God has for you for the remaining years of your life is to stand there like a tree ever full of sap and green and declare that the Lord is upright. You know, it's very easy for young people in the, in the ups and downs of life because they just haven't experienced very many. To hit certain circumstances, to hit certain hardships, and to have the question explode in their minds, is God really upright? Is he really my rock? Is, is there really no unrighteousness in God? Oh, but you, dear aged saint, can stand there like a tree full of green and sap and say, yes, he is upright. I have lived everything that you could have lived and more, and he is upright. He is a rock. He is trustworthy, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Dear brothers and sisters, God is not done with you until he calls you home. Bear fruit, even in your old age. All of this, by the way, is what what I mean by death being a fulfillment to you and not a terror. You remember that from the main idea? So death, death comes for us all, but, but live your life in such a way that when it comes for you, death will be to you a fulfillment and not a terror. Friend, if you're trying to use the little years of these lives to build monuments to yourself, to build some lasting legacy to yourself, if you're trying to torture life into giving you something that it was never meant to give, then death is going to come to you as a terror. It's going to come to you as an interruption of your program. It's going to come to you as a a stark, sharp ending to the project that you thought your entire life was about. Now, but friend, if you live your life like the teacher has been teaching you how to live your life, if you live your life in trust and joy of God, then death comes to you just as a fulfillment because it just delivers you into the arms of a Savior you've already spent a lifetime learning to love and enjoy. Death's going to come. But live in such a way that it comes to you as a fulfillment of the life you've already been living and not as an interrupting terror. I wonder if you've ever thought about God like this, like, like the teacher's been 
teaching you to think about God. You know, one of the most awful things about what Satan did in the Garden of Eden is, is not just that he got Adam and Eve to commit some little sin against God. Now, he managed in the process of that to inject into their veins a poison that has affected every single human being right down to the seat that you're sitting in right now. It's a poison that has convinced us over and over and over and deep down to the very roots of our hearts that our God is, is a stingy, crabbed, evil, mean God who's doing everything in his power to keep good things from us. That was the lie that Satan told to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? He turned their eyes off of all the trees in the garden that were good for food, off, off of the entire beautiful, harmonious creation. He turned their eyes to one tree in the center of the garden and said, God wants to keep that away from you. What an awful God he is. And from that day down to the present, that's how we think of God. Stingy, crabbed, wanting to keep the good things of this world away from us. And maybe, just maybe, if we put enough quarters in the slot machine, or if we do enough good things, or if we, if we can pry his fingers open just a little, he'll drop out a gumball for us every once in a while of goodness. Oh, friend, that Edenic poison flows through my veins, it, throw, it flows through your veins, and it causes us to think about God exactly wrongly. And part of what the teacher has been trying to, to teach you in the book of Ecclesiastes is that God is not like that at all. He's been offering you the antidote to that Edenic poison that says, actually, no, God is a God who is so overflowing in goodness and generosity and so much wants to give us good things that he did not withhold even his own son from us so that he might give us eternity. Now, brothers and sisters, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout as you go through the years of this life for that Edenic poison rushing through your veins again. God is stingy. God is mean. God is crabbed. God wants me to suffer. No, God wants you to glory. He wants you to enjoy. He wants you to know him and to enjoy him and revel in his goodness. Not only in the age to come, but also in this one. Let's pray.